0: Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is A.J. Jacobs author of The Year of Living Biblically and three other New York Times bestsellers. His newest book is Thanks, A Thousand. It's a fascinating and entertaining book that will inspire readers in these ridiculously challenging times. The idea of the book is deceptively simple. On a dare from his son, Jacobs embarked on a quest to personally thank every single person who had a role in making his morning cup of coffee possible. That turned out to be a jaw-dropping number of people farmers and baristas, yes, but also artists, chemists, politicians, biologists, miners, smugglers, and goat herds. Jacobs traveled around the world learning the surprising stories of these unsung heroes in our lives. The book is a timely exploration of our world's interconnectedness. It's an argument against tribalism and rabid nationalism. It highlights how much we take for granted and how gratitude can make our lives happier, kinder and more impactful. It's a great book and we had a great conversation about it. I give you AJ Jacobs. AJ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott.
1: Of course. Thanks a thousand.
0: (laughs) You are a person who's written uh, lots of well-known books most recently. Thanks a thousand, A Gratitude Journey. And I want to start this conversation by thanking you for two things. The first, two things that you've, you've helped me find the origin of or or know that i didn't know first i think from your column modern problems that used to do yeah i i know what blowing smoke up your ass means
1: (laughs) i am so honored that that has made an impact on you
0: Uh. (laughs) yeah you walk around and say that so often and now i know
1: what it means and And,
0: and i'm and i'm grateful that i i know it and that i live in a time where we don't do it i guess there you go (laughs)
1: And should we, for the listeners, I feel I should uh, uh, let them in on if they don't know already, there was something in the 1800s, 1700s called the tobacco enema. And it was what it sounds like. The doctor would take a hose and blow smoke up your butt to uh, cure all sorts of ailments. There's stomach problems, malaise, whatever. And the idea was uh, that, and that is apparently... Although it's a little unclear where the phrase came from, but I love it. I mention it not just because it's one of the weirdest facts ever, but also because it shows we may healthcare is not great now. There's a lot of challenges, but at least we're not doing that.
0: So the the. Phrase, I guess, comes from like—is it because we know it doesn't work anymore, or we, or don't just ameliorate me? Is it because it used to? We used to think it worked. I mean, I, I'm not sure where the expression comes from. I know, and I have
1: I have spent way too much time online looking
0: to figure out the
1: exact etymology, but uh, but it does seem that most people think that this is this is the practice that spawned the term.
0: The other thing that I want to thank you a thousand for to be great is 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 Zarf.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you like that too. Yeah. That's one of my favorite takeaways from my book.
0: I, I this is, of course, the the sleeve that 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 contain that covers the coffee cup to help you from burning your hand.
1: Right. The little cardboard sleeve that we've seen a million times, and I just didn't know. But it has a name, Z-A-R-F, and it's there are ancient zarfs actually zarfs like in china made of gold and and ivory but the modern zarf was invented in i think it was uh, like 1992 by a guy who just he spilled coffee on himself because it was too hot and he's like i'm gonna solve this so i loved that because as we we can talk about if you want this, it was just one of the many things in life you, you take for granted, but it uh, but it makes our lives incrementally better.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. When, years ago, before there were zarfs or java jackets <laughs> widely spread, I was on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and I got a cup of coffee and I asked for a second styrofoam oh, cup because it was it was so hot and he said the guy said even the, the, the girls don't ask for a second cup wow and i was i was just humiliated and i thought man as so i was thinking gosh i could i, I would have been so grateful for a zarf <laughs> at that point said everybody like looked at me like i was the the emasculated pool just mm-hmm. melting into the floor
1: Wait, that is so,
0: interesting. Well, that guy needs some sensitivity training on uh, yeah, gender yeah, exactly. stereotypes. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I think he's. I think he's beyond. Uh, thanks a thousand.
1: <laughs> it's. I, it's a good start, but Hopefully I don't know. That I think,
0: not. Yeah. So. Yeah. So this book, I, I, I wanted to ask you about a previous book you wrote, which I think a lot of people uh, have heard of, even if they, they've probably heard. Uh, you stoning an adulterer, which is my favorite thing in the book. But well, thank you. I couldn't have done it without the adulterer or the stones. <laughs>
1: exactly. He really was. He helped my career a lot.
0: Exactly. Thank God for his infidelity. But uh, you, you wrote this book Year of Living Biblically. You, you actually tried to to follow all the rules in the Bible, mostly the Old Testament, as, as best you know as you could for a year right that's it that's exactly right
1: and it started because uh as i say in the book i grew up with no religion uh i i I categorize myself as a uh, i'm jewish in the same way the olive garden is italian so not very um and you know i didn't have uh the Hebrew school or the Bar mitzvah, but i I was very interested in what to teach my kids, and also just was I missing anything? You know, I uh, there half the world is or more is religious, so what am I missing? So I thought one way to learn would be to dive in and live the Bible as literally as possible. So I, as you say, I followed all the rules, the famous ones, the Ten Commandments uh, and uh, love your neighbor. But also the ones that don't get as much uh, publicity. So, uh, not the Bible says you cannot wear clothes made of two different kinds of fabric. So, no polygotton blends. Had to get rid of that. The Bible says you cannot shave the corners of your beard. I didn't know where the corners were, so I just let the whole thing grow, and I looked sort of you know, like Ted Kaczynski by the end. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure your wife. I'm sure your wife loved that. Oh, she didn't kiss me literally for seven months. She was, uh, yeah, so she was appalled by much of it. Uh, some of it she liked because there were parts that made me a better person. I, I think that's the key is it's it's not all good or bad, that it's uh, it's nuanced. There are a lot of great, there's some parts of the Bible that are wonderful and uh, other parts that we should not take literally at all and that it's okay to ignore parts. So that yeah. was my takeaway, anyway.
0: I had a, 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 ra, a, a, a religious, per, a, an expert in religious law and secular law. He's a, grew up Orthodox Jew. His name's Chaim Simon, and he teaches at Villanova. And he wrote a book called Halakha, uh, which is basically his Jew, a Jewish understanding of law. And he said, you know, one of the things about, translating halachic law is that it it, it, is the Torah is this, this body, which includes Torah, all this stuff encompasses so much more than rules that it it does legal theory. It does mythical things, artistic things. And I wonder like, what what did you do with the parts of the, of the Bible that were, that were not rule or most of its narrative, right? Or poetry or things like that. Like how did, How did you interact with the parts of the text that weren't rules?
1: Uh, Well, that's interesting. I I mean, I definitely would try to use some of the stories and parables as inspiration. So, uh, you know, you look at the Joseph story and you see the dangers of having a favorite child because they gets (laughs) thrown in the ditch. So maybe don't have a favorite child. But on the other hand, it's a very confusing book because some of the narratives you can take the opposite, uh, lesson. So for instance, in Genesis, uh, you've got, uh, lot, uh, you remember his wife turned into a pillar of salt and he fled Sodom and Gomorrah and he ended up in a cave with his daughters and his daughters, uh, Thought that no one else was around, so they got him drunk and slept with him. Uh, so what do you do with that? You know, what's the lesson there? I don't want to. I don't want to have uh, any relations with anyone who is
0: <laughs> close to me. Uh, that, that that is you. You pull out the George Costanza rule. What do I do with this text? I do the opposite.
1: <laughs> there you go. Yes, sometimes. Yes, sometimes do the opposite, but it's a very I've uh, my feeling is it's it's an ancient book and I am of the belief it was written by many people over hundreds of years uh, and uh, sort of uh, the Wikipedia uh, style uh, it accumulated and so some of the people who wrote in the Bible were very wise and compassionate and some were not so you have. Uh, parts of the Bible, like this was one of the rules I had to try to follow was in Leviticus, it says that if two men are in a fight and the wife of one of those men grabs the private parts of the other man, then her hand shall be cut off. So I'm thinking, I don't know who wrote this, but my guess is They had something similar happen to them, and they were like, this is never going to happen again in history, and they put it in the Bible. And I was able to follow that by just, as you say, doing the opposite, not getting in a fight with another man while his wife was standing nearby.
0: But I think if you get in a fight with another man and and your wife defends you with that kind of zeal, she's a keeper. (laughs) I never thought of it that way, but you know, you're right. I mean, it
1: is very romantic in a sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the one guy who wrote that was on the losing end of the brawl. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's true. But, uh, yeah, I
1: prefer, you know, the the uh, embrace outsiders, love your neighbor. That that definitely resonates with me more than uh, mm-hmm. than this but i i like what you say it's uh, it, it definitely is a sign of commitment
0: <laughs> <laughs> so i mean is there a link i mean i i i've heard you i think somewhere in an interview say that one of the things you did take from this practice of trying to live the bible literally is saying all these thank yous for things that you're you're supposed to say all these prayers of gratitude and, and is there some connection with w- between the two books in that regard the sort of oh yeah a huge connection. I mean, I don't think this gratitude book would have ex-
1: existed without my Bible book, because as you say, there were a lot of things from the Bible project that I uh, I did uh, continue. You know, not the beard and not the stoning of adulterers, but but one of them was gratitude. And I, I there's tons of research on how important gratitude is to your mental well being, even your physical well being. Um, Uh, and so I would for a couple of years I would say a modified prayer of thanksgiving before a meal but since uh, I'm pretty secular it was a a sort of a secular version so I would say uh, I'd like to thank the farmer who grew this tomato and the truck driver who drove the tomato to the store and my son who was 10 at the time said you know dad that's That's not bad, but it's also kind of lame because those people are not in our apartment. They can't hear you. They're not getting anything out of it. If you really felt this way, maybe you should go and thank them in person. And I thought that is a very interesting idea. That could be a book. So I thanked him for giving me a book idea, earning his supper. And I spent the next six months traveling around, uh, the world trying to thank every single person who had even the smallest role in the coffee so uh the farmer the zarf inventor the um the people who chopped down the trees for the cup uh, the the person who uh drove the i i remember i called the woman who did um pest control For the warehouse where the coffee is stored. And I said, I know this sounds strange, but I want to thank you for keeping the insects out of my coffee. And she said, Well, that is strange, but you know (laughs) what? (laughs) She's like, Thank you. We don't get a lot of appreciation. So there, uh, people were, most of them, not all, some were just like, Get away from me. Is this a pyramid scheme? But most of them were happy to be acknowledged because they don't get any
0: acknowledgement. Yeah, you know, Martin Buber, the great Jewish thinker, ta- has that great book called I and Thou, and, and, and talking about how really that's what human beings long for, is this I-thou relationship where it's both subjects, not, not I-it, where, where one person's a subject and another's an object. And so often we're just treating people like objects or tools. And so many of these beautiful things in your book are where there are these I-thou moments that unfold, and, and you tell them so beautifully. The one with, with the barista early on and you you thank her and 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 she's a little confused and 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 she's tired and then you talk with her and she your interaction the description is beautiful i mean you learn that she was an usher in church she you learn she shows you a picture of her foot she got hit by a bus and because of the the pain it's becoming difficult she had to go back to to california to, to care for i mean This woman, just this act of saying thank you didn't just make her a thou, but you also got access to some sacred parts of her story.
1: I love that you say that. And I wish I had been smart enough to reference Martin Boomer in that story, because you're absolutely right. Uh, It was it was an I, thou moment. And and especially because I asked her about being a barista. And she said, it's it's not an easy job. You're encountering people in a very dangerous state, which is Uh, (laughs) pre-caffeination. And by the way, she would never do this, but I have heard of other baristas. If you're mean to them, they will give you decaf coffee instead of caffeinated. So there's just a selfish motivation to be a little nicer. But what I I found was uh, when I asked her the hardest part, she said, well, it's when people don't even treat me like a human, like you said, they just uh, it's like a, an exchange with a machine, the like a, a kiosk. they just um, hold out their credit card without looking up from their phone and there's no interaction and that just makes her feel dehumanized. So you know, we're all busy, but i've I've decided, Uh, To spare, you know, I can spare two seconds to look someone in the eye and and, uh, you know, actually try to put myself in their shoes and try to remind myself this is a person who had, uh, you know, she's got family and uh, and aspirations and embarrassing high school memories and favorite movies. And, you know, this uh, let's treat her like an actual human. And it's so small and easy to do, but it has such a big impact.
0: You, and this doesn't come natural to me, you say in the beginning of the book that you're more Larry David than Tom Hanks by nature, right? That you're, oh, you're given to cynicism, you know, kind of looking down and, and, you know, instead of up when you hand them your credit card, this was a, a learned discipline, right?
1: Absolutely. And I I mean, I do think, as you say, uh, I had a negative bias. Uh, and I was very good at noticing the hundreds of things that went wrong. I'm sorry, the the three or four things that went wrong every day instead of the hundreds of things that went right. And I don't think I'm alone. I I may have been an an sort of on the far end of the curve, but I think humans in general are from an evolutionary standpoint, we are bred to have a negative bias because it was helpful on the Savannah to notice the lion. You know, you needed to notice that lion, uh, But it's not great for our mental health. It's not great for our happiness. So as you say, it's a discipline forcing yourself to notice, forcing yourself to embrace the Mr. Rogers side and doing it with all sorts of uh, rituals and practices. And that's what I've, that's a lot of this book was sort of a journey to discover the best practices for making myself more grateful. And one, before I forget it, because I probably will, that I still love and do is uh, when I'm trying to fall asleep, instead of counting sheep, I count the things that I'm grateful for, and I do it alphabetically. That's sort of the the key to me. So I could start with a and be thankful for the apples, the apple pancakes my kids made over the weekend or B I could be thankful for um, the TV show Barry on HBO, which I love with Henry Winkler and they can, so they can be small things. They can be big things. You know, I'm grateful for my, uh, for my wife, uh, but they could, but the key is to try to do it alphabetically. And generally I fall asleep around F or G.
0: Do you use xylophone and x-ray a lot?
1: <laughs> yeah, those are, see, I have not gotten up to X or Y very often. so I'm
0: just doing uh, a little pre, pre-work pre for you in case yeah, you're, no, you have you, insomnia. You're right. You know, there's there's not a lot. I mean, there's not no, a lot you good.
1: could... Well, you have to be creative. That's part of what I think that's good because it tires the mind out.
0: And, and you learned uh, I, something that I think, is it Millard Fuller, the founder of Habitat for Humanity, <laughs> said that, that basically it's easier to change to start with your behavior and change your mind, to, to act your way into a new way of thinking, then think your way into a new way of acting, that that basically you learn kind of the fake it till you make it through all this stuff, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Fake it till you make it, feel it till you feel it. And I love that you know who said it because uh, I, I do quote him uh, quite a bit. And then that, and that I feel guilty. People put it on Twitter like I said it. And then I'm like, ah, oh, what? Should I <laughs> I should be grateful to Miller Suller as uh, you. But anyway, yes, uh, this is actually a theme throughout many of my books. Um, and to give you, uh, one is forcing yourself to be grateful. Like you, you know, I would wake up in a a cranky mood, but I'd force myself to write these thank you notes, and and just by doing that physical act of typing or writing, it r- reminds you that. Look at that. That That is something that this person helped me out. And I'll give you, <laughs> I, there are dozens of examples from my various projects, but one was even it helped, that strategy helped my marriage. Because I remember uh, I did this project suggested by readers that I should try to be the best husband Uh, ever for a month because I had put my wife through all sorts of misery with my beard and uh, other behaviors, uh, other biblical behavior. So I was like, all right, I'll try to be the best husband ever. And one of the things I did was I every day forced myself to buy her a little trinket, a little gift, like, uh, you know, a little bar of scented soap. And it was weird because I would see myself giving her this present and it had an effect on my feelings. I'd be like, oh, I must really love my wife if I'm giving her a present. And it works. It's, it, it's, uh, it, it's sort of the foundation of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I think is uh, the most effective form of therapy, uh, at least in my personal experience. Uh, and so that, uh, yeah, I love the idea of acting your way into a new way of thinking.
0: Do you ever get tired of talking about your work at, like, cocktail parties? Because I, I feel like you're just – I mean, I feel like you could go all night. I mean, you, you've you got, you know, stories. You've got maxims, quotations. I mean, I would think you're at the top of people's cocktail party guest list.
1: <laughs> well, you're very nice. I mean, some people – my wife has heard them all, so she's ready to, uh, to move on. I will say, though, I think I'm lucky in that uh, I have one strength. I, you know, I'm not uh, – I don't think I'm, I'm certainly not the most athletic. I don't think I'm the smartest person alive, but I am one of the more curious people alive. So I find that, and I should do it during this podcast, and I'm sorry if I don't, but I love asking other people questions. So I, you know, they may ask me for a little, but but as soon as I can, I turn it on them because I just love to dig in and find out about other people, what they do, because there's so much to learn. It's crazy. Like, that was – one of my projects was reading the encyclopedia from A to Z, and one of the big lessons was just how little I know. And uh, even after reading the encyclopedia, I know very, very little of the uh, the world's knowledge.
0: Do you think, like, the the Internet has, is, is one of the, like, tragic losses that, like – it's like it's sort of like how iTunes kills the album because now nobody listens to things in the sequence they are arranged. I mean, I wonder how much like the encyclopedia is killed by the internet, in that there's this beautiful thing, it's intimidating, but like here you have the sense of here's the knowledge we have, at least you can see it and touch it, as, as, right. a, as opposed to now it's just amorphous in, in the cloud.
1: Well, that is a great point. I mean, I think there are positives and negatives to the internet, um, and to Wikipedia, which I use every day. Uh, so I'm not a Luddite. I don't want to smash it. But uh, but there there are some things that are lost, one of which is also, I think, lost when you don't read the newspaper in in paper form, which I don't. And I make fun of my wife for doing it because I'm I'm a hypocrite. But
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 if if you don't show me a person who's not a hypocrite, I'll show you a person with low ideals.
1: Lovely, exactly. I think there should be some, uh, yeah, you should have some social uh, incentive to declare yourself a hypocrite, because I think realizing we all have these contradictions is important. Uh, It keeps our mind open. But but anyway, uh, when you're reading a newspaper or reading the encyclopedia in print, you know, you could be reading about uh, Abbott and Costello, and then the next entry is about an abbey somewhere in france and that i think is wonderful this serendipity this this idea that you can just stumble into information as opposed to when you go on wikipedia like you just zero in on what you want
0: i want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald. Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlan, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Wittgenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. It's interesting to me, too, that your work strikes me as, you know, I think, I, I generally think there are splitters, thinkers that are splitters that like to break things apart, and there are kind of unifiers or lumpers, people that like to group things together, and you seem like... A person that likes to group things together, like your cousins' big family reunion project, showing how we're <laughs> all cousins, we're all s- distant cousins somehow. But yet, you know, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in the UK says that you know that there's no experience of the universal except through a particular, and that seems to be another thread of your work that you that you get to these universal connections through particulars like a cup of coffee or a mm. religious tradition or a you know that, that you seem to like hone in on a particularity to get out to the big picture.
1: Well, I love that. So you are much smarter about my career than I am.
0: Hey, I could uh, follow yeah. you around and just interpret you. Like, <laughs> I, could, awesome. I could be your Talmud. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, That is
1: brilliant. Uh, well, a couple of things occurred to me. First of all, would you be considered a splitter for splitting the world into two parts, the splitters and the uh, the groupers, or would, would it be the other way around? That's just something that occurred to me. Good question. Good question. (laughs) The second is, I I think you're absolutely right. I love these big topics, but it's very hard to write a book on, you know, just uh, I'm going to write a book about religion, all of the religious Judeo-Christian history. I need, as you say, a wedge, some way to get in and make it so it's really relatable. To people. And, uh, and luckily I've been able to, uh, find some great wedges and, uh, uh, I, I feel like, uh, I love, I love the projects I take on, uh, and not, so I don't sound, uh, maybe too full of myself. I, I have come up with some terrible wedges as well. Like I always, when people say, how do you come up with your ideas? I always remind them, well, you're just seeing the ideas that sort of worked. I've I come up with, you know, 98 percent of my ideas are terrible uh, and uh, you just don't see that. So I think that's an important part of the uh, the creative process, realizing m- it's a numbers game. You've got to come up with a lot of ideas for some of them to work.
0: Yeah, and don't we need to figure out a way in our culture to incentivize failure? I feel like success mm. incentivizes itself, but like what you're talking about, like, hey, look, behind the success is necessarily a lot more failures, right? And actually, the, the great successes, people that have continual successes, probably accumulate the biggest piles of failures, right? I mean, right. I love that
1: idea. And uh, I mean, I do have a couple of friends who like they'll have podcasts where, you know, you you read your worst, the worst thing you've ever written. Or there's like um, failed pilots, uh, failed TV pilots, uh, festivals. So there is a little bit of it. But I think you're right. I think if we can celebrate it more, it would be hugely motivating to people.
0: You have this story in the book where you meet this guy named ed in greater philly as i recall like and he's a kind of more reserved guy and he, he's kind of a little surprised that you you want to focus in on him because he says he's usually a background guy he's also a bassist in the uh in the in, in a band he plays in and he teaches you how to uh swish coffee around in your mouth and get the taste down and everything and you, you, you have this kind of reflection after meeting him, and it's you were moved by his background statement, and you, you kind of say that we have this mythology of of the of the single achiever, right? That we we like to to attribute success to a figure, a person. We we sort of fet we fetishize the soloist or the lead actor. And you almost wanted, right, to just put a bunch of names as the author of the book, but your publisher <laughs> didn't want to do that. <laughs> but that's an important. I that's a it's a, it's an interesting insight, and you even grapple with the. Am I a hypocrite because I I, I, I because my ego kind of drives on being the, the 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 author? Yeah. Wow.
1: You put it very uh very succinctly and articulately. That is exactly right. I think it's a big problem in our society. Is that we fetishize the lead singers, the superstars? We always want one hero to elevate. And I talk about uh, Jonas Salk, uh, who uh, uh, I, I know uh, it's not easy to uh, to trash talk Jonas Salk, but I will try. Um, and he uh, he, uh, uh, if you look at the history, uh, he he took way. M- too much credit and did not give a lot of credit to the people in his lab or the people who developed these strains of polio that could be reproduced. And, uh, and I think that's terrible because everything good is a team effort. Uh, and as you say, my book, I could have on the cover, it could have been by me, but also there's my editor, copy editor, the book designer, the people who... Uh, you know, made the paper for the book, so there are hundreds of people which my publisher would not let me put on the cover, but uh, but I think uh, I was moved by Ed's uh, uh, talk about how bassists are important too. Where there's no shame in being a bassist, and actually, uh, after the book came out, I was watching Chris Rock's most recent stand-up special, and uh, and he had a brilliant. Uh, similar insight where he talked about in marriage you have sometimes you're the lead singer but sometimes you're in the background playing tambourine and you've got to look like you're enjoying that tambourine like you have got to be okay with being in the background and he said his mistake he got divorced is that he just never wanted to play the tambourine so yeah the, I love Chris Rock's way of saying you know let's Let's celebrate the tambourines.
0: I want to graduate to tambourine in my marriage. I mean I'm looking at this. That'd be a step up for me. Bell bottoms and a tambourine. I'd be thrilled. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean you're not you're not Pollyannish about the coffee thing either. You do talk about the inequities that hey, coffee's great. It helps people. It starts their day, but it also exploits people and their environmental hazards. And 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 you you know there there there's another point though where you're you're trying to not be Pollyannish. And somebody you read this op-ed piece where it says like you know gratitude's the opiate of the masses. It's how the man keeps everybody down. And you you reached out to your gratitude expert, I think at Penn, and he said actually that's not the case. And he proved it to you with. An interesting experiment, right, with broken down computers.
1: Right. Yeah, I love this because I do think it's it's a problem. You know, you don't want to be so grateful that you're like, oh, everything's perfect. And, you know, Walmart employees should be happy that they're paid uh, $7 an hour, which I know they're not. So sorry, Walmart. But, uh, <laughs> but the idea is that, uh, that hopefully gratitude is uh, a spur for action for making the world better. And yeah, there is research that this is true, uh, and uh, and that basically, when people are feeling grateful, they are more willing to pay it forward. They're more generous. They're more helpful. And I love that idea because, uh, for instance, with this coffee project, I felt it a little. Uh, 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 for instance, with the water. Coffee is is nine almost ninety nine percent water. So I had to thank go up to the Catskills and thank the folks who who make New York water possible. There are hundreds of them, and they are scientists and uh, testers and people who even pick up the poop on the side of the reservoir so it doesn't the go into our drinking water. I mean, that is not a glamorous job, but there are hundred. And what it made me realize is the that is nearly miraculous that you can turn this tap and have fresh drinkable water. Uh, And that this, it reminded me that it is not, this was not the case for most of human history and it's not the case for billions of people now who have to walk for hours every day to get water. So it, it was a good reminder. The more you think about the process, the more you're reminded of how lucky you are and that, uh, maybe you should help so i uh, you know i uh, i'm not expecting a nobel prize but i did uh, donate more money to a charity that provides clean water to uh to people in developing nations because again this gratitude journey was such a reminder that i am very lucky to have what i have
0: it's interesting you say that this miracle that happens when you turn the tab gk chesterton the British. Uh... 20th century writer in a book called Orthodox. He, he converted from atheism to christianity and he wrote a book about christianity he said that that we're as old as our dreams and as, as, or as young as our dreams and as old as our cynicism and the truth is our heavenly father is often younger than we are and he talks about the different the importance of wonder and the difference between a four-year-old and a 14-year-old at the zoo mm. and, and for a four-year-old Everything is like Alice in Wonderland. It's, it's akin to a, ta- a, 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 a rabbit with a top hat or talking, you know, like there, there shouldn't just be cheetahs or there shouldn't just be elephants. It's amazing. Right. And, and I, what I take from your gratitude book is, look, the, the, we're just the world just didn't become like this. It's 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 it, and when you see it as a gift and not just a necessary thing like a, a given. It, I mean, there's a big difference right, between seeing the world as a given and seeing it as a gift. Mm. And, and one elicits gratitude and the other seems to elicit entitlement.
1: Mm. Yeah, I love what you say. I, I mean, I think that was one of the big uh, lessons I learned as well as the importance of wonder and awe and being appreciative, not just for the world, but for the tiny, tiniest things in the world. Like I, uh, one of my favorite conversations was with the guy who invented the... The lid for my coffee cup, and I called him up, and he was so passionate, and he was uh, he he had so much to say about this lid that I had given zero thought to, so he talked about the the shape of the the opening where the aroma comes out and how important that is to get the aroma. And he made the lid so you could really burrow your nose in. It's like an upside down hexagon. And uh, I love that he put so much thought into it. And it made me realize there are these little uh, wonders all around us uh, that we take for granted.
0: You, I somebody shared with me a Facebook post you shared. You actually went to George H. W. Bush's funeral. You were invited. That you said that maybe they had they needed more token liberals, but you're actually a cousin. You got an interview with him because you said I'm a distant cousin. They said, okay, we'll make an exception for family. But but as as I read your gratitude book, I, I kind of read. I looked at that post again, and, and that post was full of gratitude. I mean, like that post, all the little details you shared, I mean, th- there was a life, there was, I mean, he struck me as a, a grateful man, really.
1: I agree, and I mean, I think, uh, you know, I don't agree with him politically, and I have my issues with some other things, but but overall, I I'm a huge admirer of, for instance, his sense of service. I mean, the guy was super uh, privileged, uh, but he he volunteered for World War II over the objections of his dad, and uh, and he was shot down, uh, and the the people in his plane died, and he felt uh, this moral responsibility, sort of the survivor's guilt, uh, that it, if he was saved, he should at least do something. With his life that's going to make The world a better place So yeah I think Overall that is just uh, I mean it was so Poignant because I believe That is something hugely Missing from uh, Politics today
0: (laughs) Do you you think if Trump got Your book as a gift he'd go Look I'm the most grateful person (laughs) I I have the most Gratitude (laughs)
1: absolutely well i love when he said he's the most humble human being on earth like uh that is like an automatically disqualifying him from humility that that,
0: that, how that he is. and when he said i'm the least racist person you've ever if you have to say you're the least racist person <laughs> you might be a little racist i'm just saying I, I yeah it's i'm just saying it's generally not general rule of thumb a, i think you're wise i think that's
1: so true uh Yeah. So it was a wonder. I mean, as I say in that post, we were one of 4,000 people and we actually sat in the back of the cathedral and uh, we couldn't see. We had to watch it on a monitor in the cathedral. So we basically could have stayed home. Uh cathedrals are beautiful but they do need better stadium seating.
0: Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's not a medieval design sort of uh, uh you know priority. It wasn't I guess strength, yeah. It, you you know Tim Ferriss and, and have been on his podcast a couple times. Yes. You you guys share kind of the human guinea pig writing style. I mean, you know that you, you that you'll put yourself through the paces. To sort of see what the human condition can yield, or what what's possible. I mean, I that's an interesting writing style. I'm curious, hey, because one of your early books, right? You were you were going to write about Elvis and 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 Jesus, right? And like, so, so I mean, that's a far cry from cause I, unless you were going to do one, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be Elvis and, during the week and Jesus on the weekends and dress up or something. But like, I'm wondering when you when, when you kind of figured, hey, this is the kind of way i'm gonna go about things i'm, I'm, I'm gonna kind of actually throw myself into the project so i can write about what i'm living
1: right um yeah and i'm a big fan of tim and he does do what i do but uh in a much more successful way uh but i, I he's been very generous uh and uh, i've been on his podcast and and it's interesting i think like many things in life uh it, it was a, a happy accident so i don't think when i was uh, starting my career i was going to be like well this is how i'm going to approach things partly it was uh necessity is the mother of invention so i uh, all your writing teachers will say write what you know or write about your own life and my own life was quite dull i had a childhood uh you know i was sort of a nerd who isn't? And uh, my dad and mom were, uh, you know, they weren't, uh, they didn't uh, belong to the circus. They weren't Russian spies. So I thought, well, no one's... They weren't Russian spies
0: that you knew.
1: (laughs) You're right. You're right. Maybe that'll be my next book, really investigating. Um, But anyway, I thought if I'm going to have something to write about, I better try to go on an adventure, try to change my life, try to, uh, experiment. And, uh, and I love it. I mean, I, I'm sort of a proselytizer for that. Everyone should be doing experiments. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't need a a book contract to write, uh, and it doesn't have to be growing a huge beard. It could be just small things like trying new, new toothpastes or, uh, going to work in a different route, uh, just to keep your mind flexible, which I think we need so much nowadays. We, you know, we are stuck in our tribes and our routines, and that's that's part of the problem.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that the more information and options available, the more stuck we are in our routines. And also, we're in the safest age to boot. I mean, this is the Steven Pinker kind of thesis, right? That this is really—it's not that there are problems, but man. If you could pick a time to be alive, you'd pick this time. And, and, you know, we're more tribal with more options and we're more anxious and scared when we have more security than anybody ever had.
1: I know it is so fast. I think about it all the time, like the gap between our mental state, our our lack of happiness versus our physical state where we, the world has become so much more prosperous, even for the, uh, you know, for the lowest uh, quarter of humanity, which you know, of course, we still need a lot of work, but but we've made so much progress in poverty. And uh, I I think about why is this, uh, and part of the reason is I you know everyone's favorite scapegoat I think plays a part in it. Social media, because you are seeing or or just news twenty four hour news, because uh, when when my parents were my age, they would read. The bad news in the newspaper for twenty minutes, and then that's it. Whereas I am getting bombarded on Twitter for like sixteen hours a day with how horrible the world is, uh, even though it's just one part of the world is horrible, and there are hundreds of things that are going right. There are uh, medicines that are being invented. There are uh, you know people being saved from poverty. There are. Eighty thousand flights that land safely, as opposed to the one that has extreme—you uh, know—people get uh, extreme turbul- turbulence. So it's—I uh, I think it is this constant stream of information is really warping our minds.
0: I came across this uh, this passage uh, from a guy who I'd never heard of before, but Robert J. Lifton, who's a psychiatrist and a pioneer in brain research, and. Mm. He says that he thinks many neuroses in, in society, it, it, he can attribute to a nagging sense of guilt without knowing, knowing its source. He says, hmm. the anxiety is a vague but persistent kind of self-condemnation related to the symbolic disharmony, as I've described, a sense of having no outlet for his loyalties and no symbolic structure for his achievements. Hmm. As I was reading that and I was finishing your book, I, I thought, wow, it seems like gratitude gets at some of that problem right it gives i mean it for you it gave you a structure right to to Mm. to dedicate yourself to and 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 it also gave you a symbolic i mean you said hey i'm agnostic but it gave you some transcendent symbolic meaning like hey the universe is you know it bends towards gratitude in some ways if you know at least the pleasant experience of it
1: yeah i love that Um, and uh it's related in my mind i don't know if he meant this but it's related in my mind to this idea of connectedness and that, uh, that it takes thousands of people to make my cup of coffee. And my previous book, as you mentioned, was all about how everyone on earth is related and that, um, uh, you know, uh, you are my cousin. We have to figure out how, but you're probably my, my eighth cousin. And, and that gives me tremendous uh, psychological comfort, this idea of belonging and being part of something bigger. And... Uh, and yeah, I think uh, uh, that this idea of you know loneliness, which is which is a plague, uh, is is just so bad for our, I mean, that is so anxiety producing. If you think you're alone, if you think you're not part of something bigger. So as you say, I'm, I'm pretty secular. I'm agnostic, but I'm able to find the being part of something bigger without God. And it's being part of this world of sentient beings.
0: You could make like the secular holiday film, Sen- <laughs> sentience and gratitude, the greatest story ever told. <laughs>
1: I love it. I am in. Give me, uh, yeah, you invest and I'll start producing. (laughs)
0: Well, AJ, thanks a thousand for coming on with me. And this is a great book. And I'll tell you, I, I can't think of a better holiday gift for anybody listening, it's, it, I mean, it's not a long book. It's incredibly well written. And so many people are, you know, the holidays are a great time, but they're also a time where people do feel increased anxiety and loneliness. Right. And I feel like this is a great uh, gift to to invite people to to greater connection. And so thanks. Well,
1: I love it. Well, can I say one thank you to you? Sure. You of course. Of course. I, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but I just want to say thank you. I've been listening to episodes and I love your open mind and your curiosity and your willingness to consider other perspectives, um, and uh, I just think that is so important. And your thoughtfulness—you know—that you you gave some insights into my work that I hadn't thought about. So, thank you.
0: Hey, right, you're very welcome, and thank you for 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 writing the book and talking with me about it. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks a thousand to AJ Jacobs for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Thanks a Thousand. It would make a great holiday gift. I really mean that. And thanks a thousand to you once again for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.